Morning, Grace. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, still in verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. I know we started Hebrews in September, and here we are in November, and we're still in chapter, verse 3. I'm okay with that. We'll be in verse 3 next week, but we'll actually be moving on to the other phrases. So if that discourages you, we will be moving on to the other phrases, Lord willing, next week. Hebrews chapter 1, Verse 3, hear the word of the Lord. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So today's sermon is going to be a lot like last week's sermon. It will be a little bit different. There'll be a lot of church history first, and then we'll get down into the nitty-gritty of our lives, and we may be surprised to see that in our thinking sometimes the way we view God, we are much like Arius, who we heard about last week, we'll hear more about this week. So we'll still see how God's law exposes us as sinners, as people who try to imagine and think of God differently apart from how he has revealed himself in his word. But we'll also see how Jesus, how the gospel delivers us. But we're going to continue from where we left off last week's sermon, where we started to look at how the church, the early church, dealt with Arius. Now, do you remember Arius? He was a pastor in the early part of the fourth century. And do you remember what Arius believed? Arius believed that Jesus was the very first thing or being that God created. Arius did not believe that Jesus was the eternal son of God. He did not believe that God the Father was loving his son Jesus in eternity past in and through the Spirit. And Arius did not believe that Jesus was loving God the Father in and through the Holy Spirit in eternity past. Arius believed that Jesus was the very first thing that God created. He believed that God the creator became God the father after he created Jesus the son. Arius did not believe Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, or he did not believe, I would say, our interpretation of Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. He did not believe what Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 stresses about the Trinitarian God. And what Arius did not realize is that if you make Jesus less than God, then you make the gospel less than good. If you make Jesus less than God, then you make the gospel less than good. It's not good news. See, Arius did not understand that if you mess up the person of Jesus, then you mess up his work, his life, death, and resurrection. He did not understand that if you get the person of Christ wrong, then you get the work of Christ wrong. He did not understand that if you get Jesus wrong, then you get the gospel wrong. And Arius did not understand that if you get Jesus wrong, then you don't have salvation, you don't have forgiveness of sins, you don't have anything but a new, made-up Jesus, something that you made up in your mind. If Jesus is not God's eternal Son, being loved by God the Father in the Spirit in eternity past, then the gospel is not good news. If Jesus is not God's eternal Son, loving his Father in the Spirit in eternity past, then the gospel is not good news. 
If the triune God is not sharing love in eternity past before he ever created anything, then the gospel is not good news. If Jesus is less than God, then God is like Allah, the God of Islam. If Jesus is less than God, then God is like Allah, the God of Islam, in eternity past. He's alone. He's self-centered. He has no one with him. He sits around and stares at a mirror. He's lonely, just like Allah. And if God is all alone in eternity past, then he needs to create something in order to be loving. He needs to create something or someone to love. And that means that we don't get in on that eternal Trinitarian love if God is all alone in eternity past just as creator. See, this is not good news, Grace. And this is exactly what Arius was preaching in the AD 320s. Remember from last week that Arius was not some unknown backwoods preacher from Podunk, Egypt. He was a pastor in Alexandria, Egypt, and he pastored a mega church. And he was an excellent communicator, and he was a very popular preacher. And Arius would have given Chris Tomlin a run for his money when it came to writing worship songs. Arius was not only a gifted preacher, he was a gifted songwriter. He was the Chris Tomlin of his day. And he wrote catchy worship songs. And all the churches throughout Egypt were singing his songs. But his lyrics were terrible. And they were terrible because they denied the eternality of God the Father. Meaning Arius believed and taught that God was first a creator, first a ruler, And then he became God the Father after he made Jesus. And his lyrics were terrible because he denied the eternality of Jesus the Son. So Arius' lyrics probably went something like this. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. I'm not going to sing any more of it, okay? You know the song. This is how Arius would have finished it. Our God, you reign forever the creator before you were the father. You aren't the everlasting God. Aren't the everlasting God. You were made by him. You aren't eternal. You're the first thing God ever made. The first thing he did create. He made you then. He made the eagles. Arius wrote catchy songs. He was a dynamic preacher. He was extremely popular. He had the number one downloaded podcast on iTunes, and he won every Dove Award for Songwriter of the Year, year after year after year. And he needed to be confronted. Someone needed to show up and challenge the teachings of Arius that were sweeping through the churches. And that someone was a bishop named Alexander the bishop of Alexandria in Egypt. Alexander brought forth a rebuttal of Arius' teaching. He called Arius out. And this caused divisions and separations in the church. Some people in Constantine's empire were on the side of Arius and others were on the side of Alexander. So the church was being divided and ripped apart by the teachings of this man named Arius. And so in response to this, the emperor Constantine called together the church's theologians and their pastors and seminary professors 
to discuss Jesus, to discuss the Son's essence and his relationship to God the Father. So Constantine called together the church leaders to discuss what the relationship was between God the Father and Jesus. Was it eternal or did God create Jesus? And during the winter of 324-325 AD, the very first ecumenical council was called in Nicaea in modern-day Turkey. They're called together to discuss the teachings of Arius. And after many meetings and many discussions, which were centered on God's word, and Hebrews 1-3 was a key passage, then finally on June 19th, 325 AD, the Nicene Creed was composed, and it affirmed that Jesus, the Son, shared God the Father's nature and essence as God. It affirmed, contrary to Arius, that Jesus was the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And it affirmed that Jesus the Son had always existed as God in eternity past and that he was never created. The Nicene Creed made explicit what was already implicitly believed in the church. The Nicene Creed just fleshed out in more detail what Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 means when it says this about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. The church leaders at Nicaea just fleshed out in more detail that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and that he is the exact imprint of his nature. They fleshed out Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. And what the preacher of Hebrews is saying here in this verse is that if you see Jesus, then you see God. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. And this is exactly what Jesus said in John 14, 9. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So the pastors and the theologians of the day gathered at Nicaea, and they confirmed in a well-written creed, a creed is just, it comes from the word credo, I believe. It's just a belief, a statement they confirmed in this well-written creed, this well-written statement of faith, the words of Jesus, that if you see Jesus, then you've seen God the Father. Now, let me read the Nicene Creed, because it explains what the preacher of Hebrews means when he describes Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The Nicene Creed is the best commentary on Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. I've put it in your sermon notes. It's on your sermon page so that you can read it and study it on, on your own after this sermon. And if you want to find out more about church history, I'm going to be sending out some resources this week. So if you have not signed up for The Vine, which is our daily email devotional that goes out Monday through Friday, just get one of those cards that James was talking about and put your name and email address and write, sign me up for The Vine. So tomorrow and all week long, I'm going to be giving you some resources. We're going to be continuing talking talking about church history. And I've given you the Nicene Creed there on your notes so you can study it. But I want you to listen for these phrases that appear in the Nicene Creed because they are direct quotations that Arius and his followers would have used. There was once when he was not. He was not before he was begotten. He came into existence from nothing. Those are the ways that Arius was describing Jesus, that there was a time when Jesus did not exist, that he was not before he was, and that he came into existence at a point in time from nothing. 
So listen for these phrases because the council of Nicaea is directly addressing Arius when they quote him in the creed. Look at your sermon notes. The Nicene Creed says this. We believe in one God, Father, all sovereign, maker of all things seen and unseen. Now let's pause. If you remember from about a month ago, I mentioned how Arius believed, and I mentioned earlier in the sermon that God was first creator or ruler, and then he became father. Notice in the Nicene Creed, right off the bat, they say we believe in one God, father. Not creator first, not ruler first. So go back to the beginning. We believe in one God, father. All sovereign. Now he talks about making things, maker of all things seen and unseen, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father as only begotten. That is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence, homoousios, we'll talk about that in a minute, one in with the Father, through whom all things came into existence, the things in heaven and the things on earth, who because of men and our salvation came down and was incarnated, made man, suffered, and arose the third day, ascended into heaven, comes to judge the living and the dead. And we believe in one Holy Spirit. And to those who say there was once when he was not, or he was not before he was begotten, or he came into existence from nothing, or who affirmed that the Son of God is of another nature, or substance, or a creature, or mutable, or subject to change, such ones the Catholic or universal and apostolic church pronounces accursed and separated from the church. That's the best commentary on what it means that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He is of the same essence or nature as God the Father. The Nicene Creed was written to let all churches know that if you make Jesus less than God, then you make the gospel less than good. The Nicene Creed said that if you mess up the person of Jesus, then you mess up his work. You mess up his life, his death, his resurrection. If you get the person of Christ wrong, then you get the work of Christ wrong. If you get Jesus wrong, then you get the gospel wrong. And if you get Jesus wrong, you don't have salvation. You don't have forgiveness of sins. You don't have imputed righteousness. You don't have anything but a new, made-up Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Bible. And so what the Nicene Creed did was to draw a circle around what was acceptable to believe about Jesus being God. And that's why the the creeds and the council of of church history are so important because Arius interpreted Hebrews chapter one, verse three differently. If you quoted a verse to contradict Arius, he would have quoted scripture to contradict you. And he might've even quoted the same verse that you were quoting at him. His interpretation was different. And so this is why the creeds and the councils and the interpretation handed down by the apostles and prophets is so important to us. My church history, Professor Jeff Bingham says this, the interpretation of scripture passed down by the apostles and preserved by the bishops was a safeguard in the face of heretics who also appealed to scripture. Understand this grace, heretics always quote the Bible. They quote the Bible and they make it say what they want it to say 
As I said last week, you can make the Bible sing any song you want to. And that's why we need the church community, the church community of a local church and the church community throughout church history. And so the tradition, the interpretation of scripture that has been passed down to us through church history is a safeguard in the face of heretics who also want to quote the Bible. We can make an appeal to the tradition that has been passed down from the apostles and prophets to the early church and then throughout church history and we can say that this is what the church has always believed about Jesus. That's exactly what the councils and creeds do. The councils and the creeds of church history carry on the tradition that was passed down from the apostles and the prophets. They highlight and they make explicit what was already implicitly believed by the church. So what the creeds and councils of church history do is draw circles around what we can and can't say about God. They give us parameters that we must stay within when we think and discuss God. And Arius and his followers went beyond the tradition handed down by the apostles and prophets. Arius said that Jesus was created. And what group believes this today? What group today believes that Jesus was created? Did you know that Arianism is alive and well today? What group believes, that, believes exactly what Arius believed? The answer is the Jehovah's Witnesses. They don't believe that Jesus existed in eternity past as God's son. Jehovah's Witnesses are Arian in their beliefs. Besides the fact that they've got God's name wrong, God's name is not Jehovah. It appears nowhere in Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek. It's a a made-up name. God has revealed himself through the Hebrew Bible as Yahweh. So Jehovah's just not even God's name. It's a made-up name. That's strike one against them. Strike two, they don't believe that Jesus was with God the Father sharing their love in eternity past. So Arianism is alive and well today, still after all these many years. Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong. They don't properly understand what the word begotten means. And neither did Arius. Arius was wrong in the way that he interpreted Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 and in the way that he interpreted Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. See, when Arius read Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5, here's how he understood the word begotten. Arius believed that Jesus was begotten or made or created by God. That's how Arius understood the word begotten. That it means that you're made or created by someone. But to be begotten does not mean to be created. It does not mean to be made. To be begotten means that Jesus, the Son, is from the same essence or nature as the Father. Arius believed that Jesus was begotten of God, but what he meant was that Jesus was made or created by God, but that's not what the word begotten means. To be begotten means that you have the same essence or nature as something. Let me explain it this way. My six children are from the same essence or nature as me. I am a human being, therefore they are what? Human beings. We share the same essence or nature. They're not dogs. They're not cats. If there were cats, I would have get rid of them. All the cat lovers are going to email me this week. 
Come on, you know dogs. They love you. They're there for you. Cats, feed me, water me, leave me alone. And if I want attention, I'll come around on my terms. My children are not cats. They're not dogs. They're human beings because they're from the same essence or nature as me. Human beings beget human beings. Dogs beget dogs. Cats beget cats. So to be begotten means that you are from the same essence as the one who begat you. It means that you are from the exact nature as your father. So when we say that Jesus is God's only begotten son, we mean that he's from the same essence as God the Father. He has the same nature as God the Father. He is God just as the Father is God. He is eternal just as the Father is eternal. He is love just as the Father is love. He is holy just as the Father is holy. He has the same nature as God the Father because he is God too. And that's what the preacher of Hebrews means when he says that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. We saw this a few weeks ago. The Greek word that the preacher of Hebrews uses here was used of making an imprint in something of putting a stamp or a seal in something. They would take metal and impress the emperor's image into it to make coins. So when the preacher of Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature, he is saying that when you see Jesus, you see God. Because Jesus is of the same essence or nature as the Father. He is God. He is God's eternal Son. But Jesus didn't become the son in relationship to his father at his birth and incarnation. Contrary to what Arius was teaching, Jesus was always the son. For all of eternity past, Jesus was the eternal son of God. And Arius and his followers, as they were confronted about this belief, they did not receive the rescuing grace that was coming to them through the body of Christ at Nicaea. They would not recant. They would not change their thinking. They would not disappear quietly. And so another man got involved in fighting the heresy of Arius, Athanasius of Alexander, a very young bishop who replaced Alexander as bishop in 328. And Athanasius carried on the work that Alexander started. And he challenged Arius' view of salvation as well as his view of Jesus as a created being. And one of his works was aptly titled Against the Arians. So when he took his book to the publisher, what's the title of your book? What's it about? Against the Arians? That would be a great title. And that's what it's about. You can read all this stuff online. So Athanasius argued that Jesus was of the very same nature as the Father. The Greek word that Athanasius used here is homoousios, from the word homo, same, and ousios, nature, indicating that Jesus possessed the identical nature as God the Father. He is God just as the Father is. That He is the exact imprint of his nature. But some people at the Council of Nicaea proposed that if we said that Christ was homoousios, from the Greek word homoi, similar, and ousios, nature, if he's the similar nature with the Father, then they said this would be sufficient. See, some people wanted all the divisions that were sweeping throughout the empire to stop because it was just splitting the church in half and they wanted it to end. So they said, let's compromise. Don't say that Jesus is from the same nature as the Father. Don't say that he is the exact imprint of God the Father 
has his nature. Let's say that he is similar in nature to God the Father. And so there was a big debate in all of the churches over these very similar sounding words. Hamousios, same nature. Hamoiousios, similar nature. And the debate was sweeping throughout the churches in Egypt and over Constantine's empire. And it was all over one letter, the letter I. Hamousios or ha Moi usios. Did Jesus have the same nature, hamausios, as God the Father, or was he just similar in nature, hamoiousios, to God the Father? Was he the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, or was he just similar to God the Father? These were the questions that were being discussed at Nicaea, and when it came time to vote, the church leaders voted, and these are the results. Now, the number of positive votes varies depending on who you read, but the, the negative votes are always the same. They're very clear. Here's how church historian Stephen Nichol explains it. Sticking with the numbers, the vote at Nicaea was not close. Pinpointing the number of bishops in attendance is difficult. Numbers ranged from 220 to 318. The number of yes votes ranged anywhere from 218 to 316. Scholars know the number of no votes with accuracy there were two cast by friends of Arius. So you have between 218 and 316 bishops and pastors voting in the affirmative that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and two votes in the negative. Two votes that were cast by the friends of Arius. Listen, if you can get 220 to to 318 pastors together and have them agree on something, you know it must be true. Because even the pastoral staff have differing views. I, of course, have the correct interpretation of everything. And the other guys are just waiting to catch up. That'll probably be heaven, I assume. And I'll say, you finally arrived. But seriously, if you can get 300 plus pastors to agree on something, you know there must be some truth there. Two votes in the no, and they were by the friends of Arius. So Athanasius and company prevailed over Arius, insisting that Jesus was of the same nature, hamousios, and not similar nature as God, hamoiousios. And as a result of the council of Nicaea, Arius was exiled along with many of his followers for teaching heresy, for teaching contrary to the Bible's teaching about the essence or the nature of Jesus, the Son. Arius and his followers were sent into exile for having an incorrect interpretation of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. But the debates didn't end there. Athanasius actually spent the rest of his life laboring to teach that Jesus had the same essence or nature as God the Father. Followers of Arius continued to promote this heresy, so Athanasius continued to fight for truth. Now get this, for over 60 plus years, for over 60 plus years, Athanasius defended this doctrine. For over 60 plus years, Athanasius defended that Jesus was the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 60 plus years defending and explaining Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. You wonder why I preached on it so much? Because Athanasius is one of my heroes. 
Church historian Stephen Nichols says this about the tenacity of Athanasius. Athanasius took hold of an idea, the word homoousion, and would not for life or limb or exile let go. And he was sent into exile several times. The church could not be as grateful to anyone as they can and should be to Athanasius, a theologian who wrangled over not just a word, but over a letter for six decades. Athanasius spent his life in one long theological debate over apparent minutia, and if he hadn't, we'd all be in trouble. One has to ask why Athanasius endured so much for so long. Why did he wrangle for decades over one word, over one letter, the letter I? The reason comes in a phrase also found in the Nicene Creed, a phrase that is attributed to Athanasius. It may not be too much of a stretch to claim this phrase to be one of the most profound, if not beautiful, phrases in all of theological literature. The phrase, for us and for our salvation. Athanasius wrangled with the best minds of the day and endured persecution at the hands of the most powerful politicians of the day, all for the sake of the gospel. The person of Christ, Athanasius believed, had everything to do with the work of Christ. If the church got it wrong on the person of Christ, the church would be wrong on the work of Christ. Athanasius spent six decades contending for a letter and contending against the world for the sake of the gospel. Until he was over 90 years old. Athanasius is proof that Jesus will build his church. Why did Athanasius labor like this? Why did he spend 60 plus years fighting over one letter, the letter I? Because if you make Jesus less than God, then you make the gospel less than good. If you mess up the person of Jesus, then you mess up his work, his life, death, resurrection, and his return. If you get the person of Christ wrong, then you get the work of Christ wrong. If you get Jesus wrong, you get the gospel wrong. And if you get Jesus wrong, then you don't have salvation. You don't have forgiveness of sins. You don't have imputed righteousness. You don't have anything but a brand spanking new Jesus that you created in your mind like Arius. This is why it's so important that Alexander and Athanasius and all those at the Council of Nicaea fought for the truth of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Arius believed that God was not in essence a father, but that he was first a creator or a ruler. So Arius taught that God chose at some point to create for himself a son. He didn't have an eternal son that he always loved, Arius claimed. He wanted for some reason, Arius claimed, God wanted to have a creation, but he didn't want to get his hands dirty. So he created this thing, his son, that would do his dirty work for him. The dirty work of creating the physical world. Now, here's where it gets into the nitty-gritty of our lives, Grace. How does that change the character of God? If you have a God who wants creation but doesn't want to be involved. So he has to create a son who will then create creation because he doesn't want to get his hands dirty. What is the God of Arius like? 
He's aloof. He's detached. He's distant. He's aloof. He's detached. He's distant. And yes, he's not inherently loving. The God that Arius came up with was not a loving God because he was not in his essence love. It was all a business transaction, a business deal. So at the very heart of Arius's God is this God who deals with people in business deals, in transactions, always saying to them, I need you to do something for me. Do stuff for me, perform for me. And so the very first relationship that this God of Arius has is a business deal, a business deal with his son that he has created. And so the gospel for Arius is that God does not have this desire for Jesus, this eternal love for Jesus. There's no heartfelt love for Jesus by God the Father. According to Arius... God just simply appoints Jesus to a particular role, the role of creating. That's how this God relates to people. Do stuff for me. Perform for me. And so with this God that Arius preaches about, what do you think having a relationship with him is like? What's it like to have a relationship with the God that Arius was preaching about? You have to do stuff for him. Of course, Arius would say that this God would give you grace, but how do you get that grace? By doing stuff for him, by checking off the to-do list, by doing what he wants you to do. Grace comes, according to Arius, when you perform. Grace comes, love comes when you do when you do stuff for him. You think, I think many Christians have this view of God, and I know I do in my own personal life, and this is where the law exposes me. This is where the law exposes you because many of us think of God this way. We try to fashion God in the way that we want him to be. And if we're honest with ourselves, many times we view God the way Arius has painted him. We think we have to do for things for him and then he will love us and then he will give us grace. We think that all God wants is for people to do things for him. Just check off the list. Do more. Try harder. Do more. You're not doing enough. Do more. Try harder. Is that your view of God? Do you think he is primarily interested in what you do or don't do? If that's the way you think, you may have the same idea about God that Arius had. If you view God first and foremost as a lawgiver, then that's how you will relate to him. You will always be trying to keep the rules to please him in order to get his favor. You'll always be trying hard to make sure you stay in line instead of enjoying him as he is a loving father. Before the foundation of the world, God was not a lawgiver. 
He was not a ruler. He was not a creator. He was a father loving his son in the spirit. This is who God is essentially. This is the gospel. And seeing God that way will change everything about your Christian life. Viewing God as being essentially love. A loving father and not first a rule maker or a lawgiver that will change everything about your Christian life. It will make you want him. It will make you desire him. It will make you long to be with him. And that's why it's so important to believe that Jesus is the eternal son of God. Because if you make Jesus less than God, then you make the gospel less than good. This is why Athanasius is so important. If you don't have an eternal son, then the whole nature of God is completely different. If Jesus is not the everlasting, eternal son of God, then God is not in his essence loving He's not first and foremost a God of love, but a God who likes to deal with people through what they do for him. He's not first and foremost a God of love, but a God who likes to deal with people through what they do for him. This God is fundamentally driven by business deals and transactions and not love. But Athanasius rightly argued for an eternal Trinitarian God who is fundamentally interested in loving relationships and not business deals. Athanasius rightly argued for an eternal Trinitarian God who is fundamentally interested in loving relationships and not business deals. And that's what God is interested in with us. It's not about what we do or don't do for him. It's all about a loving relationship. I'm not saying obedience isn't important. I'm not saying sanctification is important. I'm not saying it's not important. It is. But that's not the essence of our relationship with God. If that was, do you feel good about your last week? I don't. If my relationship with God is based on how I behaved last week, I'm already condemned to hell. And so are you. It's not about what we do or don't for him. It's all about a loving relationship, enjoying this God and what he has done for us in his son, Jesus. God the Father was interested in loving his son in eternity past, not having Jesus do things for him. He was interested in loving his son in eternity past, not coming up with rules for us to obey. So what is God interested in with us? Doing things, doing more, trying harder? Or is he most interested in having a relationship with us where we can glorify him and enjoy him? Athanasius and me, this Johnny-come-lately, I'll admit that, we would argue for the latter. God is most interested in having a loving relationship with us and not giving us a list of things to do. And understanding that will change everything about your relationship with God. It'll actually make you want to do the things that you know you're supposed to do. Isn't that crazy? It makes me want to. When I hear how much he loves me, it says, I, I want to honor you and glorify you. I want to do the things you want me to do. But when I switch it and say, my relationship is all about what I do for you, I'm a, I'm a mess. Because I get prideful when I'm doing good. I'm like, look at me, I'm doing good. And when I do terrible, I get depressed. 
Understanding that will change everything about your relationship with God. And that's why if you make Jesus less than God, then you make the gospel less than good. And if Jesus is not God, then we can't echo Jesus' words in John 19.30. It is finished. And if Jesus is not God, then we can't say Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if Jesus is not God, then we can't quote Psalm 103 verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And if Jesus is not God, then we can't sing what we're about to stand up and sing in a moment. That our God, you reign forever our hope, our strong deliverer. You are the everlasting God, the everlasting God. You do not faint, you won't grow weary. You're the defender of the weak. You comfort those in need. You lift us up on wings like eagles. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is God. He has revealed God the Father to us. He has revealed that God is love. He has revealed that God is foundationally and fundamentally loved because Jesus is God. Here's the good news of the gospel. We get to be swept away and caught up in that eternal Trinitarian love of God. And here's the good news of the gospel according to Athanasius. He came for us and our salvation. He doesn't come to get. Understand that. Jesus doesn't come to get He comes to give. He came for us in our salvation. He comes to give. So a final word from Richard Sibbs, a Puritan that I love. He wants us to know that Jesus doesn't come for his end, but ours, for us and our salvation. Listen to Richard Sibbs. Does he come empty? Does Jesus come empty? No. He comes with all grace. His goodness is a communicative, diffusive goodness. He comes to spread his treasures to enrich the heart with all grace and strength, to bear all afflictions, to encounter all dangers, to bring peace of conscience and joy in the Holy Ghost. He comes indeed to make our hearts, as it were, a heaven. Do but consider this. He comes not for his own ends, but to empty his goodness into our hearts. As a breast that desires to empty itself of milk when it is full, so this fountain hath the fullness of a fountain which strives to empty his goodness into our souls. He comes out of love to us. Let these considerations melt our hearts. Let that consideration of Jesus melt your heart this morning so that you will love him and enjoy him more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. It's all about him. It's not about Athanasius and Alexander. We are grateful for them, that you raised them up. You raised other people up throughout church history to defend truth, and we thank you for it. But you did it for the sake of the gospel, for your glory, so that we would not lose sight of your son in the busyness of church life, God. So we thank you for Jesus who you sent to share your eternal love with us, to reveal who you are, a God of love, Father. Oh, would we begin to see you that way, that you come not to get, you come not for your own end, but you come to spread your treasures and spread your goodness and pour your goodness into our hearts. Would that picture of you melt our hearts 
this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.